Hey everybody, welcome to Hints and Guesses. This is Kent Dobson. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for supporting the work. Special thanks to a couple of new patrons who joined the others in, in making this thing possible. I'm really grateful. I want to begin by reading something to give you a sense of the of where we're going here. We all carry in our inmost selves a sacred core of potential wholeness or aliveness or a creativity and that this radiant center wants to unfold and release itself through the particularities of our unique individual lives. This is the first part of a two-stage drama, this unfolding tendency, conspiring toward the full realization of one's personhood, is often represented as a child or sometimes as an animal or other living being. Often this child has something sacred or divine about it, born, quote, between the worlds. Then there is a second act to the play, namely the idea that trauma interrupts this unfolding of the personality by foreclosing transitional space through which the vital spark is actualized and that this interruption of human development can trigger a system in the psyche that acts and tries to kill the emerging child. This effort to quote, kill the soul child is not usually an effort to annihilate it altogether, but to eliminate consciousness of it and actually in the final analysis, save it. Instead of annihilation, we see in dreams that the child has gone into exile. We would say, into the unconscious, where it lives in suspended animation until some future time when it can reemerge. This is a passage from a book by Donald Kalshed called Trauma and the Soul, a psycho-spiritual approach to human development and trauma and its interruptions. And I kind of want to talk a bit about this today, not not so much as some kind of trauma expert. A lot of people are tra- are claiming uh, expertise in trauma, and I want to be sensitive to the terrain here. And I am not not an expert, and though it comes up in its various manifestations in the kind of guiding work I do, and um, and in the uh, guide training that I'm a part of at Animus Valley Institute in Colorado, and it's of course some. Um, you know, it's made its way into into contemporary uh, jargon, and um, I want to talk about this terrain because of the kind of mythopoetic resonances with Advent and with the Christ story and the Christ narrative, and and it's just interesting uh, to me. I um, every time this time of year comes comes around. I feel again the pull as we all do, like what is this Christ child? Who is this Christ child? And not only from sort of like a historical perspective or as it relates to a particular kind of Christian theology, but to what is it pointing? And I, I want to try to pick up on that 
on that thread today? What is it pointing toward that has to do with, uh, with, hu- with human development and our own potentialities as human beings and really our own soul, our own core, what wants to be born in the world and the forces that come in and try to cut that off, either in more intense and severe ways like in um, childhood trauma or adult trauma and, and, and in more subtle ways and yeah, and it's kind of challenging terrain to talk about. I've been I've been kind of slow in wanting to say something. And sometimes I trust that slowness, like, okay, just let things percolate and until you can try to be as clear as possible. Um and I, I want to read again just the beginning of this passage. We all carry in our inmost selves a sacred core of potential wholeness or aliveness or creativity. And that this radiant center wants to unfold and realize itself through the particularities of our unique individual lives is the first part of a two-stage drama. And this is a conviction I have, uh, something I, I hold to, a kind of faith, and a kind of faith rooted in my own personal experience and also as a parent, and where occasionally you get glimpses of your own kid's most inmost self or their potential wholeness or aliveness or creativity, a kind of radiant center. And, and of course, the feeling of not being in touch with our own potential wholeness or aliveness and the, or the radiant center within. I mean, that is a kind of existential and actual depression, pressing something down and a kind of malaise that comes with it. And and, and the kind of um, cultural, mm, I don't know quite the right word, there's a kind of cultural fog, really, that keeps us, in a way, distant from our own radiant center. Through all kinds of strategies, uh, luring us into, um, into identities and, and, and postures and political stances and... Um, and ideologies that are a substitute for contact with this radiant center. And, and um, you know, I'm, I often think about Thomas Merton, who really was one of the key voices that reintroduced the West, the Christian Western tradition, and beyond that, of course, to, um, to the Christian mystics. Like, who were these ancient desert fathers and mothers, whether they lived in the desert literally or not, I, I mean that as a kind of symbol, desert fathers and mothers. And, and, um, and of course, Thomas Merton was a, was a kind of bridging figure between these desert mystics and, and the Eastern tradition, the Zen Eastern tradition at large. And, and, and of course, he died in the East, not in Kentucky as a, um, as a cloistered monk. So, uh, well, and and here's the line that was coming to me just now. He says that the desert fathers and mothers knew that society was a shipwreck from which we must swim for our lives. Yeah, society is a shipwreck which we must swim for our lives, and 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 maybe each generation has to wrestle with the precise nature of the shipwreck of society. And um. And, yeah, so I don't know what I would say about that other than, yeah, 
part of the swimming. What, so what are we swimming back toward or away from? Um, in part, is our own radiant center that wants to unfold, that our parents and caregivers and sometimes even religious traditions has, and, and of course our inner voices, which we'll get to in a moment, have cut us off from, cut us off from our own core vitality, our own eros in the largest sense of that word, uh, the upwelling of life that, that wants to live through and in and be incarnated. See, I think one of the, the sad losses as people be, become uh, estranged from the Christian tradition, uh, and for a good reason, you know. Uh, but one of the, this, I think, sad losses is, is the real mystical portal, portal of the incarnation itself, that what it seems to be communicating is not just the divine taking on flesh in a particular place, but the mystery that the divine takes on flesh in a particular place, in particularities, and, and in concrete realities, and that there's something of the life breath of the divine sacred universe itself living and breathing in all things. It's like the incarnation was a, is a portal that we pass through. And, and yeah, so anyway, to say, well, you know, the Advent story of, we can't take that, that, that seriously, come on, you know, the, you know, the divine impregnating um, the human and and part of that that dismissal comes from um, almost a religious devotion, a blind religious devotion to literalism, whether religious fundamentalist literalism or the scientific version of it, the materialistic scientific version of literalism that and dismisses it but has the same consciousness and um, yeah, so this this two part drama that that Kalshed is referring to is on the one hand, our own inner core that wants to be incarnated, uh, that has, its, has a sacred origin, rooted in God, I would say, in, in the Godhead, in the God mystery, and wants to incarnate itself, which gives the incarnation of our own radiant center, gives us a sense of meaning and purpose and duty and task and wants to, to creatively express itself in the world. And the second part of that drama are the forces, both internal and external, that come in and cut that off, that, that sever it. And that is essentially the story of Christ coming into the world, which I'm going to tell really in part, even though you're, you're familiar with it. But I want to start in kind of an unusual place, in, in a place um, that Otto Rank, who was um, a Freud's assistant, outlined. And he called it the infant hero myths. He started to notice, wait, there's a pattern here. And and um, and I'm going to give you the pattern. So here, are, here's the pattern that that exists in infant hero myths across the, you know, across traditions and languages. And the first stage is stage one is there's a divine um, or noble parent involved here, and often this comes through a sort of virgin birth or a kind of barrenness. So the the infant child has divine origins, in other words. And, and proof of that is either in some kind of virgin birth, that's not unique to Christianity, of course, um, or barrenness, like the, the, the inability to have a child without a kind of sacred or, or divine intervention here. And the second stage is that this child 
is born with signs and prophecies and wonders and um, and sometimes and oftentimes under the anxiety of a ruling king. So if we're already bringing the story of Jesus to mind here, where you know the first stage we have a kind of divine origins of of Christ's birth. You know, Joseph and Mary have not come together according to the Gospels, and yet and yet she's pregnant and and um, and and barren so to speak, without the intervention of, of the wind of God, which is what the Spirit of God means, and, and the signs and wonders associated with that, like, um, like dreams and visitations and angels and, 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 entire, and the entire you know, um, radiant angelic choir appearing to nomadic shepherds far from far from the halls of power and and all of this comes within a kingdom that is now anxious about the coming of some other uh, child of a divine child of a king child of something that's going to disrupt the ruling class and the order okay and the third stage here is that the infant is exposed to die, like in the Oedipus story, where his parents get a, a prophecy that he's going to grow up and kill his father and marry his mother. So they say, okay, we're going to prevent this. And they, they put the infant out to die, to be taken um, by death herself and um, or surrendered to the sea, you know, slipped into the sea or, or escapes somehow. So the infant is, is exposed to death or threat or the sea and escapes um, through a series of warnings or dreams or things like that. And I mean, think about the Moses story, which is the backdrop of, of the Christ story, where Moses too is, is born in, into a world, sort of slips through the gates under the halls of power. And when the halls of power were saying, kill all the, the Hebrew boys, and, and Moses escapes. And how does he escape? He slipped into, into water, into an ark. That's actually the word in Hebrew, same word, word that's used for um, Noah's ark. He slipped into a boat and uh, and floated down the sea and narrowly escapes the jaws of death and and is rescued here and and same with the Jesus story and and his parents are warned in a dream um, or the Magi excuse me are warned in a dream if I'm getting the story correct <laughs> suddenly it's like getting a little cloudy with other stories which is gives you a clue that we're dealing with an archetypal terrain here and but anyway the 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 their their warnings and and so Jesus escapes to Egypt that's in the Matthew version he escapes to Egypt and and is kind of recapitulating and reliving the Moses story up out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery and bondage and 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 sort of kingly uh dark malevolent power and so um which really leads us to stage four. I'm kind of blending. Stage three is the infant is exposed to death or danger, and stage four is that it's rescued. The infant is rescued, and and in the Jesus story, rescued by his parents going to Egypt, and and sometimes in other stories, rescued by animals or fishermen or a woman or a humble a humble person. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Or a humble person takes the the child in and and is raised kind of in secret. And the fifth stage here is that the um, the hero or youth now returns and to overthrow the father, that's typically how it goes, or, or renew the community or overthrow the kingdom. And, 
And you have that, of course, in the in the Jesus narrative. So Jesus comes up out of Egypt and is raised in Nazareth and kind of lives quietly and humbly for a while until he gets himself in trouble and puts himself right at the center of religious and political power of his day. Both uh, its Roman expression and Jewish expression around the temple and around Jerusalem and is eventually, in this case, a kind of great reversal. The overthrow of the kingdom comes through a kind of self-sacrificial death. So um, anyway, that's the, the hero myth story. And um, Now, I want to read you some Jung here. And again, I'm, I'm really, I want to emphasize that this, the material that I'm sort of compiling here, much of, much of this is, is in Kalshed's work on uh, trauma and the soul. So if that interests you, you can do a deeper dive here. But here's Jung here. He says, the archetype of the child has to do with the wonder of all beginnings and the wonder of all beginning again. So if you think about the image of Christ, what is it? Well, it the Christ infant wrapped in swaddling clothes is a new beginning. It's a beginning again. It's a, it's a rebirth of, of the rebirth image of potentiality and possibility and, and, and wholeness. And, and in this case, kingship with gold as, a, as an image. Of course, frankincense and myrrh are, are more images of embalming. So it's kind of when the Magi give gold, frankincense, and myrrh, it's like, ooh, it's like, uh, all right, what kind of king are we talking about? Is this like a pharaoh, you know? Because the pharaohs were embalmed with frankincense and myrrh, and, and these are, of course, at Jesus' death. So it's sort of like, kind of powerfully, the Magi are saying symbolically, will this king, or maybe they're asking, what does this kingship has to have to do with, the, with death? Very interesting um, symbolic question that's being asked with these gifts. But in any case, the giving of gifts and, and of a new beginning and the possibility of, of a less power-hungry a kingdom, which you find in the figure of Herod and the figure of Caesar. In Luke's story, Luke puts the birth of Jesus under the, the reign of, of Caesar, the census, which is a heavy taxation and a kind of oppression. And, and in the Herod story, the kind of glut and greed and murderous rage of a tyrant Jewish king, which is exactly what Herod was, a kind of tyrant genius, and had his own son drown in the pool because he was afraid he would grow up, on his birthday no doubt, was afraid he would grow up to take his kingdom and had his own wife killed because he was suspicious that uh, she and a lover were plotting against him. And so this kind of paranoia, paranoia around power, and Jesus is born right under the nose of Herod and Herod's most magnificent palace called the Herodian, which stands on the edge of Bethlehem. So talk about um, the archetype of the child coming in both as, a, as the potential of wholeness and new beginnings, but also under the cloud of, of, um, of uh, kind of malevolent darkness. Okay, here's more Jung. We are led by it to imagine being in the world as on the first day of creation. And that's part of the Christmas story. It's like, is this the first day of creation? The first day of recreation? Seeing the world for the first time, he says, this child, quote, is born out of the womb of the unconscious, begotten out of the depths of human nature, or rather out of living capital nature herself. So here he's bringing us in, 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 into the world of the unconscious and to the great, the collective field of the unconscious and to nature herself that, that has a kind of um, 
impulse toward, um, toward newness and wholeness and growth and birth. Um, so, all right, at this point, I want to kind of blur the lines just a little bit. So what are we talking about here? What are we talking about when we're talking about this child? And what are we talking about when we're talking about our own soul? Is this not analogous in some way to our own birth in the world? Our own birth into a kind of treacherous environment that wants to cut off and sever? Are we not also participating? participants in the two-stage drama, uh, stage one being um, a radiant center that wants to unfold and realize itself, and, and stage two into a world and into voices and into parents and into events that cut us off from the possibility of, of living in, into our own fullness, into our own kingship and queenship on the small level, um, or maybe on a much larger level. Yeah, these are the Herodian forces that come in and want to cut off and sever and keep us from contact with this child and permanently, in a way, exile us. So our own, in a way, as we experience just the, the traumas of life, and I'll just give a tiny definition. A trauma is, is just an interruption in the normal process through which the true self or the self or this radiant core comes into being. It's like, um, I've heard Carl Shedd say that, um, that, that life gives us more than we can handle psychologically, and those are traumas. And, and we have le these archaic and ancient defense systems that come in that want to protect that inner child. Say, so, so we were wounded when we were young, and maybe we were wounded before we can even remember. That's the case with most childhood trauma. So, so we have these wounds, and the self-care system comes, on, comes in and, and severs us from that. It's, on the one hand, it's protective and somewhat violent at the same time. I'm going to cu cut you off from experiencing the subtle vulnerabilities of your own deepest and inner self, your own inner child, to keep you from being wounded again. And, and so that process of healing um, is slow and lifelong, and, and a kind of beautiful invitation, but we have these systems that come in that say, don't be vulnerable in the world. Don't expose yourself vulnerably like the Christ child. Um, and, 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 and instead, um, let's, let's place protective fences and borders between, between the world and our own vulnerable and radiant core. And that's, that's that kind of um, uh, system of subpersonalities and complexes that wants us wants to protect us, and that's what's so amazing about um, whether we're talking about trauma with a capital T or a small T. These are words I've heard before, and it's a way of saying, okay, um, we all experience trauma, and some some is more severe than another than others. We could say maybe that's what capital T and small T is just pointing at. Not that there's always such a clear delineation here. Um, but okay, we experience life this way, and, and it's amazing that we have self-care systems that come in and, and still, in spite of all that, uh, protect this vital core that's down there. And, and maybe even part of what the Christ story is telling us and what Advent is inviting us into is um, to soften again 
and to wonder and to hope about not only the coming of Christ, but the coming of our own Christ child, our own vulnerability, our own preciousness, our own vital core into the world again, into a world that's not all that um, sensitive to who we are and what we're what we're being asked by mystery to carry into the world. It's not all that sensitive, it says. Um, it thinks it's, it's already decided what's important and who's important and what kind of expressions are important and what fit in and what don't fit in. And so we're shy. This, this, that's from Parker Palmer. The soul is a shy, shy. It's like a, an animal a, a, and, and sometimes a caged animal. And it has to be coaxed out and lured out and dated very slowly to use a kind of loving um, image or metaphor. And, um, and so, yeah, this time of year, like, and it's funny because most people I know, and I feel this a bit too, you know, the Christmas season brings a mixture of feelings. On the one hand, there's often some nostalgia and hope and, and, and longing. And also there, there can be a kind of cruelty and sort of expectations and wounds around this time of year. And, and that's a little like the Christ story. It's like, what's sensitive and uh, possible and true and good is confronted by what wants to to kill that you know symbolically and to push it down so um you know <laughs> james finley likes to say that the story of christ that that everything that happened everything that happened in the story of christ everything that happened in Matthew and Luke and um, and everything Jesus said or did reveals how God is present in our life. That's what he likes to say. It's like, okay, what is this revealing? It's not just like a history lesson and we're supposed to believe it or not believe it. And isn't it amazing that it once happened? And he's saying, no, no, that everything that happened and 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 what Jesus said and responded, how the story unfolds, reveals how God is present in our life. This is an image, a, a pattern of how God shows up. So how, in other words, how does the divine, the sacred, the mystery of life show up in your own vulnerable core, your own creativity, your own innocence? And how do, how do, the, how do the forces show up that want to, to cut us off from that? And so, and the way Jesus responds, he says, reveals how we are to respond to God's presence. So it's like, it's like a clue, like this is in part a symbol of how God shows up in the world and also some clues about how to respond. And, you know, to, to reflect on that, like, well, how did Mary and Joseph respond? And how did Jesus respond to the, what's the Shakespearean line? The slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. You know, he was born in, in a way, and I, I, I guess I'm using air quotes right now, into the randomness of history, and then I'm not using air quotes, into the random chaos of history and the particularities of certain kings and dispositions and ideas and tax structures and economies and gods and goddesses and ideologies and, and Judaisms, because there was more than one, there was more than one expression of Judaism in that day. And yeah, and so how did he respond? Um, and what does that what does that response teach us? Give us little clues for how to respond to the to the mystery of the way God shows up in our life anyway. And um, and and maybe I want to um, 
just say something personal about because I've been really been thinking about this story. I've been I've been going to an Advent um, service at the Dominican Center and that my wife has helped organize with the Dominican uh, sisters and um, the center that they they started here in Grand Rapids and. Uh, and so this story has been on my mind, and so it's kind of been working me, and and particularly the, this this past week. And there was something about the image of the inn that was pulling me. It's like, like the inn is because in the story, in the in the Christ story, Mary and Joseph make it to to Bethlehem, but there's no room in the inn. It's that image that was kind of tapping me on the shoulder, and. First of all, in a in a very obvious way, it's like okay, um, yeah, the inn is full, and 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 James Finley says, and the inn is always full. It's like the inn is that is that busy is like the busyness, the structures, the ideas, the anxieties, the frantic moving from this to this to this to this. Um, the treadmill, the promises, the dangling um, promises of you know of something new, some toy, some desire that's going to meet us and fulfill us, and um, yeah, and so the room is the inn is full. It's it's totally full and. And that's where I live. And I think about my own mind in that way. It's like, okay, so how does God enter the world? I'm just taking James Finley at face value. How, how, does, how does God enter? And well, mysteriously and, and, and tucked away, not in the inn, but in the cave, you know? And, and my mind is like the inn and it's jam full of things. And sometimes I read, I don't know if you read like this, but sometimes I read with a kind of anxiety, like, uh, like what am I missing? What am I missing? What am I missing? What do I not know? What am I missing? And that um, kind of anxious drive often leads me to a kind of sunken, more depressed state. It's like continually unsatiated and unsatisfied and and really rooted in a kind of fear, you know, and so my own in, my head is full and 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 God is born into that anyway. just tucked around the corner in a, in a cave and in darkness and among the simplicity of animals and without fanfare and shouting and proclamations and, but quietly in a cave. And, and I think, you know, am I willing to blow the light out in my own inn and move toward the darkness of the cave? I mean, that's the, that's a question I'm asking. That's how I'm letting this particular story work me and when i think about my own soul back to 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 cowshed's two two stage model and i think again i just love the way he puts it uh we all carry in our inmost selves a sacred core of potential wholeness or aliveness or creativity and that this radiant center wants to unfold and realize itself through the particularities of our unique individual lives and that in a way is is the figure that's waiting to be born in my own life quietly in a cave away from the well-lit and over-jammed room of shit and stuff and ideas and all my defensive um, theologies and uh, ways that I try to protect myself and, and egoic stances and, and um, roles and 
you know, expertise. You know, I've always been pulled by the demon and, and luring um, the voice of becoming a kind of expert. You know, this is the in and, and okay, blow the light out and move to the cave because that's where the radiant soul in wrapped in swaddling clothes wants to be born in the world again. And in my own life and in my own heart and, and this time of year, during the darkest time of year, wants to come again. Um, and to acknowledge uh, in the two-stage model the way my own violent forces, my own Herod, my own inner Herod, my own inner tyrant, wants to cut myself off from that kind of vulnerable entrance. And, you know, the, like, I don't know if, you, if you've had, had kids or ever held of, you know, a really tiny infant, like five seconds old. It's like, who is this? What is this? What is this mystery? How utterly wondrous and utterly vulnerable. How completely and mystically dependent is this wild um, being. It's like, yeah, that kind of wild being is, is an image of our own sacred core, our own sacred center. Wanting to breathe and cry and dream and love and create and grow in the world into its fullness. And, and we have these inner voices that say, okay, that thing is sensitive. That thing is sensitive. So let's protect ourselves with the, our Herodian soldiers who are going to come in and, like in the story, kill anything that's two years old and younger. God, what an image. Anything that vulnerable inside, cut off, you know, and Yeah, and so we have external Herods and we have internal Herods, we could say. And So I want to invite you, in your own imagination, if you feel the pull, I do a bit, um, to let the story work you this year. To ask, like, really simple questions what do I resonate with in the Christ story? I'm not saying you, you have to read it or go to church or go to an Advent service, or, but those things may help. Um, but I'm saying what, what if you, you know, trusted that there's a great conversation here that's happening around the changing of the seasons and the solstice and... and um, and the human heart and the human soul and, and these great myths and stories, this great unbelievable pattern for how the soul and how the divine makes itself known in the world that transcends even Christianity and Christianity's unique expression of that. And, and so anyway, what if, we, what if we said, hey, there's a kind of deep core, there's a kind of ancient wisdom that we're losing, there's a kind of ancient way that, that we're dismissing in our own materialistic, scientific, um, post-everything arrogance. And what if we let the, the sun and the moon and the darkness mix with the 
cave and the child and the soul and and found ourselves imagining imagining our where what we resonate with in the story and where we find ourselves in the story. I think this is probably one of the most profound ways of of reading or interacting or relating to any myth or story at all or poem for that matter, which is where do I find myself in the story and and what taps me on the shoulder and and to relax and to not try to figure it out like we're doing a mad scramble in the inn and looking things up in dictionaries and what does it all mean, but a kind of blowing out of the light and and receding into the cave and just letting it happen, letting letting the mystery of what wants to be born in the world. And and so maybe I want to to end with that kind of of hopeful message, which is really at the core of of um of the Advent season, which is there is hope, but it's a hidden hope. And there is faith, but it's a hidden faith. And and that God, the divine, the mystery, has shaped you in a certain way and and has brought you forth in the world as a as a radiant divine um, child with a with a core that is wildly and uniquely yours. You know, sometimes I think about like, what would Jesus do is a great place to start, but where that ultimately leads us is what would you do? And by you, we mean the deeper you, the true self, the, 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 the radiant core, like Jesus carried the cross that he was meant to carry and we're meant to carry the cross that only we can carry and with our unique makeup. And, and may this Advent season be in your own way, um, a slipping out the back door of the inn and where there's no room for the magic of something new and the birthplace and rebirth place of something, something new. It's like Nicodemus saying to Jesus, must, you know, Jesus says, we must, you must be born again. And Jesus says, well, must we enter the, our mother's womb a second time? And, and the answer to that is something like, yes, in the, in the deeper sense. Not in the, the, the continual way in which the literal ego plagues us, but in the, in the secret sense. And yeah, it is like returning to the cave or the womb or the womb of the great mother and, and Mother Mary. And yes, um, being born again, a beginning, a child. Which is why I don't know if you are tra- if you track your own dreams, but um, many of us dream of children, and, and this is not a, a, a always the case. But often the the children in our in our dreams are are images of that core that wants to be born again, and breathe again, and be again in the world, and and all the forces that either make help want that to be the case, or sometimes come in and fight us on that. That's just um, part of the terror and beauty of being a human being. You know, growing up and becoming our full selves is a noble but challenging and, and not so easy task. So may you this Advent season um, feel again your own sacred innocence and allow that to be born again as dangerous as it is in the world, but to be born again and to 
be again and to breathe again in the world. Peace.